You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. Well, this evening as we've come together, we're commemorating what we typically call Good Friday. This is a a time where we remember the sacrifice Christ endured on the cross on our behalf. And so the focus of our our teaching tonight, the focus of our time together, the focus of our our worship is remembering what Christ has done for us and and thinking about all he accomplished and the significance of that uh, for us and what that looks like in our lives And this evening, we're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture from Hebrews chapter 13. So if you turn there with me, we're going to be in Hebrews 13, and we're going to pick up at verse 7 of Hebrews 13. And in this portion of Scripture, you're going to see a variety of things. You're going to see that this portion of Scripture, it starts off with an admonition toward those in a position of influence or those who are in a position of leadership. And then it gives an admonition to each of us to stay devoted to the things that are true, to not drift toward false teaching. And then it shows us the importance of what Christ did when he gave himself on the cross. And so you see a culmination of that in this portion of Scripture. So again, we're in Hebrews chapter 13, starting with verse 7. Let me read that for us. It says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that you allow us to carve out to worship you together on on this day where we commemorate the crucifixion of your son, Jesus Christ, And Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture, that we would understand the example of faith that you're giving to us here, the example of your Son and the work of your Son, and also the admonition that you're giving to us to imitate your Son in all we do and remain devoted to Him. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd inspire us to do so, and we thank you for the teaching of your Word. We pray that you'd prepare our minds and our hearts to receive it right now, and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I'm grateful for a variety of things, and, and just about every day the Lord brings something to my mind that he reminds me to be grateful for. But one of the things that I'm grateful for is the fact that the, the Lord has placed a variety of people in my life, over the course of my life. Uh, people that have had a, a lot of influence on me, people that I have known personally, and then also people that I didn't really know personally, but also had an influence on me as well. And one of the things that I'm thankful for, and I've thought about this from time to time, uh, I'm even thankful for the people that the Lord's brought into my life that I think are bad examples of faith and bad examples of living, because sometimes in a cautionary way, I feel like I've also learned from them. And we're all imitating our influences to one degree or another. There are people that you could list on your list of influences that might be long or, you know, might be a, a, a short list or a long list, but there are people on your list that you are imitating, people that the Lord's placed in your life who have a direct impact on how you think and a direct impact on how you live. And I would contend that in many respects, we learn just as much from what we see in others as we learn through moments of direct teaching. I actually think they go hand in hand, what we see demonstrated in a person's life, and then also what we actually hear from a person's lips. I think both can have an influence on us, and both can be very powerful forms of a personal testimony. So when you think about this for a second, especially as we look at some of the opening verses that we looked at just a moment ago, I want you to ask a question. Who have you been eager to imitate over the course of your life. So what examples do you have that you've been eager to imitate, that you've seen things in their life that you decided to put into practice in your own? So even think about your, you know, like some of the phases of your life, or even 10 years ago. Who did you imitate 10 years ago? And who are you imitating now? You know, my list changes from time to time, but then there are also certain individuals that remain on that list. And I think an important question to ask that the writer of Hebrews was trying to invite us to ask as he was preparing us to think about what Christ did for us was, are the people we're imitating pointing our minds and pointing our heart toward Christ? Are they giving us a greater glimpse of the mind and the motivations of Jesus? And what, what examples or what admonition does God's Word tell us about the kind of examples of faith that we should be imitating? And how might we want to consider some of that on this day in particular when we remember the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross? Because you have the writer of Hebrews incorporating that in that same discussion in uh, this passage of Scripture from Hebrews 13. And one of the things that we're challenged to do here is people who are reading this content and internalizing this content and trying to actually put this into practice is that we need to start becoming people who live what we proclaim, and the leaders that we emulate should be people who are living what they proclaim as well. Look again at verse 7 of Hebrews 13. It says this. It says, remember your leaders. And then it's very specific. It says, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, something that I've become convinced of more and more over time is the importance of good leadership. I think our culture needs good leadership. I think our homes need good leadership. I think the church needs good leadership. When leadership is weak, when leadership is duplicitous, when it's dishonest, when it's not living above reproach, everybody suffers. But when leadership displays a sacrificial spirit, when it displays integrity, when it displays a desire to lead for Christ's glory, everyone benefits. 
I had the opportunity several years ago to visit a church that was down to just a few people. And the church had invited several pastors to come and to just sit down with them and maybe game plan what they could do because they were pretty much close to closing. And there were all sorts of things that they talked about. And finally, one of us, and I can't remember which one of us asked the question, but it was kind of the question that stuck in my mind from that whole experience. But one of us asked them, what's the primary thing you, you think you need? What do you guys feel like you need? And the answer that they gave, I thought was an unfortunate answer. Because the answer that they gave was this. They said, we would like somebody that could play the piano so we don't have to sing a cappella. Now, I like a good piano player, but I could tell you that this church needed more than that. They needed more than, because a cappella music is perfectly beautiful, and I think you could worship the Lord a cappella just as much as you could worship with a, with a piano. But one of the things that was a very glaring and obvious need in this church was leadership that would point them to Christ and then help them to gain a vision for what it would be like to actually model the gospel in their community and actually be intentional about reaching out in the community with the gospel. They were missing leadership, and as they missed leadership, they were missing some of the things that I think that the Lord was encouraging them as a church to start focusing on. I don't think a cappella music is a problem in a local church, right? Well, in the context of this scripture, you have the early church being given some examples or some, some advice regarding examples of faith that are worth imitating. Specifically, they were told to observe and to bring to mind leaders who had made the word of God clear to them, leaders who lovingly gave up the, the comforts and the false securities of this world to help them understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did for them and what it actually looks like to follow Jesus as a fully devoted follower of Christ. But unfortunately, not every leader is pointing people to Jesus. There are plenty of people in this world, even people who, to one degree or another, seem to want to convey that they are coming from a Christian worldview, who can talk a good talk, but their lives don't always back up what they seem to be proclaiming. And I think that that's an issue. And I think we've all interacted with and we've all been maybe even taught and impressed by communicators who have the gift of teaching uh, or the gift of, you know, just, you know, really clarifying different things. But what happens when you really get to know somebody? You know, what, what happens when you really get to know them? You know, do their words actually match up with what they claim to be to be, or, or, you know, do their lives match up with the words that they're proclaiming? I actually had the opportunity uh, to meet somebody just the other day who is someone whose books I have been reading. And uh, this is a Christian leader that, you know, I've, I've read his books for a while, and I actually had a conversation with him the other day. And one of the things that pleased me most about interacting with him was a big part of our discussion was how he is volunteering time in the context of his local church and some of the things that he's doing. And one of the things that his wife testified about him, apparently she oversees hospitality in the church, and uh, they had a rainy Sunday not too long ago, and she was impressed by the fact that her husband wasn't too big of a deal to grab a mop and 
clean out you know, some of the areas where water was being brought in. And to me, that made the, the impact of some of the things and some of the teaching that this particular leader was proclaiming a little bit more, uh, just stronger in my heart, because I thought, all right, if somebody's living a, a life that actually backs up what they're proclaiming, that communicates something to me. And that's the type of thing that the writer of Hebrews was trying to explain is something we should be looking for in whom we allow to influence us. And in many respects, you can tell a lot about a person's character by how that person behaves under stress. You tell a lot about somebody's character by how they they behave under stress. How does somebody behave when they are emotionally worn thin? Or how do they treat you when they're worried about something? Or, you know, what does that leader reveal about the nature of their true hopes or their sense of security when their circumstances are less than ideal? And here you have the writer of Hebrews encouraging the church to consider the outcome of the way of life of those who made God's word known to them. So the truth is, if a man truly believes in Jesus Christ, his life is going to confirm the depth of his faith. Behavior follows belief. So the behaviors that come out of your life and my life will indicate what we actually believe. There are behaviors and blessings that will become visible in the life of a leader who truly believes what he or she speaks. You know, look at those leaders' households, right? Uh, Their household will tell you something about them. Look at how they interact with people who have nothing material to offer them. You know, look at how they handle their position of authority. Can you see Christ in these individuals? This is what the writer of Hebrews was encouraging the early church to look for in leadership. If you can see the heart of Christ present in your leaders, imitate their faith. Watch what they do. Let them teach you. Then live what you proclaim because someone is also looking to you for leadership. Leadership who, or leaders who actually live out what they proclaim provide a powerful example of what it actually looks like to follow Christ and the difference that Christ makes in a person's heart when Christ changes the heart. And so you have the writer of Hebrews demonstrating this in these opening verses here that we're looking at as he prepares to segue us into looking at what Christ, the ultimate leader, has actually done. So he's using earthly leaders as kind of a a segue into preparing our minds and our hearts for the ultimate example of leadership that we see in Christ. And in Christ, and this is, you know, as we're gathered together here this evening, we're doing so as people who are grateful for who Jesus is and grateful for what he's done. And the writer of Hebrews, starting with verse 8 here, he starts to talk about the fact that Jesus suffered to make us holy. Look at what it says in verse 8, and I'll read down to verse 12, but it says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then the writer says here, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. We're going to come back to that statement in just a minute or two. Uh, the significance of it. But then it says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So again, earthly leaders are certainly valuable examples of faith, but there's no greater example than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the eternal son of God who took on flesh 
and dwelt among us. He lived, he died, and he rose from the grave. He defeated sin, Satan, and death. And he invites us to receive the gift of his forgiveness. He invites us to receive eternal life through genuine faith in him. And he offers this to us as an undeserved gift because he's already paid for it on our behalf. And here this scripture reminds us that Jesus doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the perfection of love, wisdom, and power. We were created by him, and we will never find a sense of ultimate peace or ultimate satisfaction until we find it through him. And I I actually think that's one of the things that that we as believers should get to a spot where we where our hearts fully embrace that fact that if we're trying to find a sense of peace or a, sign of, a, a, a sense of satisfaction through anything less than Jesus Christ, that that script gets changed in our mind, that it gets flipped in our mind, where we recognize we will never find a sense of peace or sense of satisfaction that truly satisfies our hearts anywhere but Jesus Christ himself. But in every generation, there are all kinds of strange teachings that get promoted and get encouraged with the goal of trying to drag us away from a pure understanding of what it means to find our strength and our security through faith in Jesus Christ. So right now in our world, there are many false religions. There are many false belief systems. In our culture, there are all sorts of false senses of peace. There's all sorts of uh, false senses of satisfaction and security. And here you have the writer of Hebrews challenging not unbelievers about these things, but he's challenging believers related to these things. And so when we're looking at this, I think it's useful for us to say, this isn't just talking about other people, this is talking about us, right? If we aren't careful, we can start drifting toward believing strange teachings that really come down to a dependence on on what we do instead of a reliance on what Christ has done for us. That's the big difference between a false teaching and the truth of the gospel. If you ever want to discern false teaching from the truth of the gospel, all you have to do is, or one of the big keys, I would say, is to to look deeply into it and discern, is this something that relies on my strength, or is this something that finds its rest in what Christ has already accomplished for us? So if our faith is in the work of our hands, instead of what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf, then we're in danger of buying into a false form of strange teaching like it describes here that conflicts with the gospel. And one of the issues that the Hebrew Christians were becoming more and more aware of in in this particular context was the false teaching that in their context that they could earn the favor of God, in particular by what they ate or didn't eat. That was one of the issues that people would debate back then. It's something people actually debate right now as well, whether you could earn the favor of God by what you eat or didn't eat. That's why there's a reference there, uh, you know, where it says, uh, for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So the people, they were debating, you know, can you earn the favor of God by what you eat or what you, what you don't eat? Now, when you look into the Old Testament, you can see that there were dietary restrictions for believers under the Old Covenant era, But the point of those restrictions wasn't to earn the favor of God. The point was actually to encourage the believers during that time to live a life that was distinct and set apart from the pagan nations that surrounded them. And then Jesus ushered in the new covenant when he shed his blood on the cross. 
And Scripture tells us that believers are no longer required to practice the the ceremonial and sacrificial and the dietary requirements of the Old Covenant, because all those things have found their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So dietary restrictions have no, and, and special foods have no capacity to change a person's heart. So I'm not a, a, a better Christian if on a given day I eat a chili dog or if I eat a, a grilled chicken Caesar salad, right? You know, and I have some days where I can drift in either direction. Lately, I've been eating more salads, but I have to tell you, I'm looking forward to the foods I'm going to be eating over this weekend because they will not be salads, right? Uh, But, you know, so one of those options might contribute to better physical health, obviously. But the food we eat does not earn us the favor of God. The work of our hands does not earn us the favor of God. The efforts we put forth in this or in that don't earn us the favor of God. So many people think that earning the, the, that the favor of God can be earned, which is a mistake right then and there, but then so many people think that all you have to do is just kind of meet some sort of checklist that then you could present to God, and if he looks through the checklist and he's satisfied with it, he's like, all right, you've earned my favor. And what Scripture's trying to teach us is that we were not capable of earning his favor. Whether it be through means like the, the Hebrew Christians were wrestling with, whether it be through dietary restrictions that they thought were the means to earn the favor of God, or whether it be the things that we struggle with day in and day out right now, we can't earn God's favor. The reason Jesus came and suffered on our behalf is because we couldn't earn the favor of God. Jesus came and he suffered on our behalf to make us holy because we weren't holy. We don't have to torture ourselves to gain the favor of God. Rather, Scripture teaches us that the favor of God is given to us as a gift of grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven, and our relationship with our Creator is completely restored. And so that was something the writer of Hebrews was trying to make it clear, using an example that would make sense to the, to the early Christians that, that were the original recipients of this letter. But it's a useful example for us, even if we're not wrestling with some of the same exact topics, the same themes definitely are things that you and I wrestle with, in our day and age. There are so many times in my life when I look back over the course of my life where I have tried to please God through the efforts of my hands, where I've mistakenly believed that I could somehow earn his favor. And the more I let my mind drift in that direction, the less aware I was of what Jesus has done for me. Jesus suffered to make us holy. Jesus came to this earth to live the perfect life on our behalf, to die death on our behalf, and to rise from the grave to defeat the power that death and sin had over us so that through faith in him we could experience the victory that he secured through the work he accomplished on our behalf. I can't make myself holy. I can't make myself presentable to God. So Jesus came to this earth to do it for me. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was trying to help the early Christians to understand. But that's something our hearts should latch on to as well. And I love where the scripture goes here because, what I, I, and I have to tell you, even before we, we look at this next section here, where we're going to talk about this idea of loving Christ more than we love our own reputations, there are references here to things that, I remember the first time I read the book of Hebrews, I was like, I have no idea what this is talking about. It's like, I have no idea what this is talking about. Like, the, like sacrifices, animals being burned outside of a camp. What on earth is this talking about? Like, I didn't know because I didn't understand the Old Testament history. I hadn't read through all the details of the Old Testament. I just remember reading through Hebrews and being like, wow, this is a hard book to understand. Well, yeah, especially if you've never read the Old Testament. 
It can be hard to understand. But when you're looking through it, what it's doing is it's showing you the purpose of all those traditions and ceremonies and sacrifices and all of those things that were in in place during the Old Covenant that were all pointing to Jesus. And it's showing us how each of those things is fulfilled in Christ. And so I'm saying that even before I reread this portion of Scripture here from from verse 13 down to verse 16, because it's going to make reference to some of those things that I still remember when I first read them. I was like, I have no idea what this is talking about. And, And I don't expect anyone to admit this, but it would not surprise me if when I read this portion of Scripture just a little bit ago, and when I reread it right now, that some of you might be like, yeah, I am definitely in that camp. What on earth is that talking about? Well, we're going to explain some of it in just a second. But look at what it's saying here. It's actually beautiful and it's amazing. And you can tell how over the course of history, God's been trying to prepare our hearts to receive Jesus Christ by giving us pictures all along the way of something Christ alone was going to fulfill. Verse 13 down to verse 16 says this. It says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Then the writer here says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So an additional example of faith that we're given here that's obviously worth imitating is the example of men and women who lived as sojourners in this world because they loved Christ more than the comforts or the praise that can come from being admired in this life. But during the Old Covenant era, and this is what some of these these examples here are referencing, there was a particular day that was referred to as the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, something in particular would happen. The bodies of animals that were slain by the priests in the midst of ceremonial sacrifices, those bodies were taken outside the camp, and they were burned. So those animal carcasses were taken outside the camp, and they were burned. And it wasn't a pretty sight. And I'm guessing it was, it was not an enjoyable task either. I don't imagine that that would be the type of task that most people would consider an envious task, you know, something that you would necessarily want to do. After a while, I, I think in some ways it might have been a little bit disturbing, and I think it was probably meant to give that kind of mental imagery. But interestingly... And you can see what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do here. He's showing us how those Old Testament traditions were meant to prepare our minds and our hearts for what Jesus was ultimately going to do. Because when Jesus came to this earth and when he died on the cross to shed his blood as a sacrifice for our sin, he was crucified outside the walls of the city. So you would say outside the camp. His blood was shed outside the camp. He was crucified outside the camp. Look at what it says in John 19. Let me show this to us real quick. In John 19, starting with verse 16, it says this. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, 
and in Greek. Now again, it says here, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, and there they crucified him. So they take him outside, outside the city, to the place of the skull. Christ's execution wasn't glamorous. You know, he's taken to a place outside the city because they didn't want the dishonor of his execution taking place within the city walls. And what you had happen here was Jesus being treated like refuse. You have Jesus being treated like garbage, even though he's God in the flesh. And he was paying for the sin that we had committed. Yet he was being treated like, like garbage for your benefit and for my benefit. Outside the city, executed outside. And the challenge we're given in this passage, when you look here at Hebrews 13 and some of these verses, the challenge that we're, we're being given here is this idea of being willing to put up with any kind of cultural shame that might come from being associated with Jesus. To be willing to go to him outside the camp. You know, to be somebody that, that maybe in some respects doesn't always fit in in every context that you're in. Or somebody that, that maybe other people kind of scratch their head at and they say, why is this so important to them? You know, to actually deal with the reproach and to deal with the shame. I'm looking around the room and I see some of you that are in high school still. I'll tell you something. I shared this with our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, and I'll, I, I told them they were going to be hearing this again soon. But so I, I, uh, I noticed something on Wednesday. On Wednesday, I had dinner in Newtown with a group of other people here in the community. It was lunch, actually. And um, I had to go back out to my car during lunch. When I went out to my car to get something, there were two teenage girls sitting at one of those bistro tables that was right outside the restaurant. And I could hear them because my car was parked right there, so I was probably less than 10 feet away from where they were sitting. And the, the first girl I heard say, she was complaining about her family's traditions for this weekend, for Easter weekend. And, she, and I'll clean up her language here, right? Because I'm being recorded. If I wasn't being recorded, obviously I would just say it, right? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. But anyway... Uh, but she said, I don't even believe in that stuff anymore. I don't even believe in that stuff anymore. And I'm like, I wonder what stuff she's talking about. Like, what stuff don't you believe? And I'm just kind of listening, not really trying to eavesdrop, but they're like as close to me as that, as that keyboard, right? And I'm like, okay. And uh, then I had to go in the door that was right by where they were seated to get back into the restaurant and the other friend chimed in and, and said, yeah, and she started talking about another one of their friends, and, uh, or the same friend, but she was talking about her from a different angle. And she said, yeah, did you notice that on her story, she's always posting scripture verses? Do you notice that on her story, she's always posting scripture verses? So I heard these two young ladies tearing apart one of their friends, and what was the subject of the ridicule that they were casting toward their other young friend. Her open faith in Christ that she would dare to make public on the internet, and the other one criticizing her family for making her participate in some of their worship traditions over the course of this weekend. And I have to tell you, the younger you are, the harder that is to put up with that stuff. You know, when I was a, when I was a young person, something like that would have devastated me. Now it doesn't devastate me as much. 
Now I, I, I feel like, I mean, it still gets to me some, but definitely not as much as it would have when I was a teenager. At that point, that would have been soul-crushing, right? At this point now, I'm like, yeah, it's not pleasant, but what are you going to do, right? And you, you hopefully can move on with your life and live another day to take a few more arrows, right? But I thought, oh, my goodness. But here's the thing that those girls didn't realize. A local pastor overheard them, and he's got a big mouth, and he shared it with his Bible study, and now he shared it with his church family. And this is being recorded, and it's being live-streamed. And I'm going to ask everybody in the hearing of what I just said to pray for those two girls who mocked someone who loves Jesus, that someday, at a time of God's choosing, that he would open their eyes and soften their hearts and help them to realize that the other young girl that they were ridiculing is 100% right and that they need Jesus too. And their family that they're ignoring, that's trying to show them Jesus, they need Jesus. So pray for them. If you hear this recording, if you're on the live stream, if you hear this via the podcast, pray for those two girls. Those of us that are gathered here tonight, pray for those two girls. I believe in the power of prayer. I may never see those two girls again. I have no idea who they are. But now I know that a lot of people are going to be praying for them, and let's see how, let's see how they do. Let's see what happens to their hearts and their minds as the Holy Spirit does his work because he changes hearts and minds. But here's the thing. When you look at this portion of Scripture, what does it say? Be willing to come to Jesus outside the camp. And you know what, you know what it's getting at there? It's saying be willing to bear the reproach that comes from being associated with Jesus. Because here's the thing. In the culture that this group of believers was living in, they were absolutely insulted for their faith in Christ. And here's the thing. In your culture, in your time, in our time, be prepared to be insulted for your faith in Christ. But here's the thing. Christ was willing to be crucified outside the city for you. And what he's saying to you and to me is be willing to go to him outside the camp. Be willing to experience reproach because you're not ashamed to bear his name. And that could be challenging to do, but here's the thing. As the Holy Spirit grips our minds and grips our hearts, what he helps us to understand is that that's more important than the praise of man. People don't even remember the praise they've given out. They don't even remember the criticism they've given out. We put so much stock in it, and it has no lasting value. And here the Scripture encourages us to be people who continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And that we have lips that, have, that are fruitful lips. The way it describes it here is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So there might have been a season of my life when I was younger where I would have been more timid about acknowledging my faith in Christ or acknowledging his name might have not flowed as freely from my lips as it does today. But I think the admonition of this scripture for each of us is, don't be ashamed of the one who bore your shame by being crucified for you outside the city. Don't be ashamed of the one who wasn't ashamed to do what he did on your behalf. He took your shame upon himself at the cross. And now we can have lips, the fruit of lips, it says, that acknowledge his name. And the portion that we just looked at, it ends by saying, do not neglect to do good and to share 
what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Well, what do we have? What can we share that we have? Yeah, certainly we could share material things, but what do we have? The greatest treasure that you and I have is a knowledge of the gospel that doesn't need to stay contained just in our mind and just in our heart. It should be lived out in our life because it will influence people when we live it out. It should be spoken by our lips because it will encourage people to trust in the same Savior that you and I have trusted in, the one who came to this earth and bore our reproach and bore our sin and bore our shame on the cross as an act of love, Scripture says, for the joy that was set before him because he knew that in doing so, your sin, my sin, would be paid for and we could be part of his family forever as we trust in him. In just a moment, we're going to partake of communion together. And obviously, anytime we partake of communion together, we have the privilege to remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. But here on Good Friday, I think it's an especially uh, poignant time for us to partake in communion together Because this is a time where we're saying, all right, this is the day that we as the church worldwide remember the fact that Jesus was crucified on our behalf. So let's thank him for what he's done for us. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've accomplished on our behalf through your son, Jesus Christ, who is willing to come to this earth and bear our shame and bear our reproach to die on the cross, to endure the pain and and endure the shame and endure the penalty that we deserved so that ultimately we could be rescued and we could be redeemed. Father, we know that we're forgetful people, and so we need to be in your word frequently because your word brings these things to our mind. Your word brings these things to our heart. And Lord, you're helping us to start value the things that, that you value. And Lord, we know that in this world, there are going to be times where we encounter examples of people who have such a steadfast faith that we're inspired to to look at their life and see, is this genuine? And then we discover that it's genuine, and we're inspired to then learn from their example and live these things out. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that. But Lord, we know that the greatest example that you've called us to emulate is that of your Son, Jesus Christ who came to this earth living the perfect life, died death on the cross, even though he did not deserve it. He took our shame upon himself. He took our sin upon himself. And he offers us new life as we trust in him. And Father, we pray that in every context that we find ourselves in, as men and women who have genuinely trusted in your son and experienced the redemption that only he offers, We pray that we would have no shame whatsoever of of bearing the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would have no shame in letting this world know that we indeed trust in your Son, Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for the privilege that it is to know you through your Son. And thank you for all the reminders of the work that he's accomplished on our behalf. We commit ourselves to you now. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Ted, what do you want to do today? Well, Ashley, I've always got uh, work to do, naps to take. 
But I have a better idea. How about we invite everyone to listen to the Team Us podcast? I love that idea. Let's do it right now. Hi, everyone. We're Ted and Ashley Slater, and we'd love for you to join us as we talk about teamwork in marriage. We share how grace, commitment, and cooperation can help couples live the everyday moments of marriage together. To listen, go to lifeaudio.com and search for Team Us.